From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and today my guest is consultant, speaker, and author Andrew Winston, whose new book, co-authored with Paul Polman, is called Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. And we'll be discussing what it means to be a net positive company and why that's so critical to your business, its growth, and our future. Andrew, welcome to Lead With We. I'm glad to be here. It's good to see you, Simon. I, I wish we were in person. but uh... Right? I know. I mean, you know, for those listening or watching, Andrew and I have known each other for 10 years, and uh, we've been circling around the sustainability you know, and, and brand world for a long time, and um, it's just a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Congrats on the, on the show. And tell me this, Andrew, like, you know, how have you survived the last 10 to 12 months? What's it been like for you? I mean, you know, we've all been working away in our little kind of vacuums. How's it been? Yeah, look, it's, it's been so weird for everybody, right? I mean, the time kind of, I feel like a year just kind of disappeared. Um, you know, we locked down for a year before we went anywhere and, you know, waited through till we got vaccinated and, you know, we're, we seem pretty safe now, but you know, my work, it, it, it was fortuitous, I guess, that I started to write a book, like right as the, the pandemic hit. And in a way, it kind of cleared my calendar, right? All my speaking engagements got canceled or virtualized or postponed. And, you know, everything kind of slowed down. And it, it, it worked out because I needed more time than I thought I was going to, to to write this book. It was kind of a harder, deeper journey than I, than I expected. Um, so that kind of worked out. And now I think as the world's coming out of it, I'm now going to shift from just writing to talking and talking to people over and over again, you know, trying to get the message out. So my, you know, like you, my business shifts really dramatically based on kind of what I'm working on. Absolutely. I think it has for all of us, but all the thought leaders and writers like ourselves, it really, it's kind of a new day. And I I want, you know, listeners, firstly, Andrew's book, Net Positive, he co-wrote it, co-authored it with Paul Palmer, who's the former CEO of Unilever. I just want to get this out of the way. You should order this book right now because it's absolutely essential for companies to understand how to become net positive. So please order it, share it with those in business and entrepreneurs that you know. We all need to be net positive and he gives a roadmap for exactly how to achieve that. So I just wanted to share that outright. And you know, for those who don't know Andrew, this is a build on a long period of work from green to gold, the big pivot. One thing I wanted to ask you Andrew is like, how is this a build on that work? Have you seen an arc, a narrative arc, in terms of the dialogue around sustainability, ESG, net positive? Give us a sense of the shape of that. Well, I guess I guess my work has tried to mirror, in some sense, mirror what's been happening around us. I feel like, I always say my job is to try to get people to the table, right? To convince them of the urgency, to get them to see the value in, in using a sustainability lens. So I get them to the table and then hopefully like the table's on wheels and I try to just gradually move it towards where we need to go. So. You know, I, I think my books have always been kind of pushing companies a little past where they're comfortable, right? And 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 that's what we need to do, or they, you know, or you're looking backwards. So yeah, my I mean, the first book, Green to Gold, was in some sense just a basic story of hey, green isn't scary. Don't worry, business. It it, it can make you money. You can say because there was just this general sense that it's compliance, it's expense, whatever you do that's sustainable costs more money. And I mean, as you know, we still deal with that. I hear that still all the time, but but much less. And, you know, I evolved, you know, just feeling more and more urgency, really, that the problems we face are getting bigger. We're not acting on them fast enough. Business wasn't pivoting enough. So I I wrote the book seven years ago, The Big Pivot, to say it's not just enough to say that, you know, green is good and you can make money. 
we actually have to start solving the world's problems. And, and that has to be the goal of a business and work back from there to figure out how to be more competitive, make money, use markets, use strategy, do all the things we do, but start from the premise of we got to solve problems. And so net positive is really like a kind of a, a really perfect kind of extension from that. I'm, you know, the themes are really, the underlying themes are the same. This is kind of a big pivot, but net positive by doing it with Paul just has, I think, far more richness and detail about how, right? <laughs> about like going in depth in part into the Unilever story and then leveraging a bunch of other companies' stories so that we can see what it starts to look like to build a company that really does serve the world and creates positive impact for everyone that they touch. And I think, you know, those who are rising to the challenge of the role that business can play are kind of intersecting with this new language out there. Like net positive might not be familiar to everyone out there. So if you could explain what does net positive mean and why was Unilever such a powerful example of that? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of people in business are... are setting net zero goals. People talk about carbon neutral, carbon positive, carbon negative. They all kind of mean the same thing. And they're usually around carbon. I mean, it's, it's around kind of your, your energy and carbon footprint. We're using net positive in a really broad, you know, just in a sense, the main, you know, definition of positive, like it just creates a positive impact. So we define it as a business that creates improved well-being for everybody that they touch, um, all stakeholders, employees, consumers, communities, and across kind of every dimension of the business, every product, every factory, every every country they operate in, every region. And that's the North Star, right? That's the the, the goal that we're shooting for. There's no company that's there yet, um, you know, not even close, really. There's companies with pieces of their business that really do accomplish this. Um, and Unilever, look, Unilever has been kind of known as a leader for many years. It's justified, um, you know, in the GlobeScan survey that comes out every year where they survey people like us and people who think about sustainability, Unilever has been number one for 11 years. And, and that's kind of an unusual level of performance in any dimension in a business, right? And in that same top 10 is usually Patagonia, Interface, Ikea, the kind of usual suspects. But to me, what makes Unilever unique is most of those other success stories have been family owned or privately owned and, and kind of have a lot of leeway. No one had really tried like Paul to take a, you know, 50 or 50 billion revenue company public a public company and try to shift it in a really fundamental way towards this path. So I feel like there's a lot to learn from that journey. And that's what hopefully we're, we're kind of bringing to the table. And before we dive into the details of that journey, for those again, who are probably aware that we're in trouble, whether it's climate, plastics in the ocean and so on, but they don't know where to begin. Yet at the same time, they've got the challenges of COVID, just keeping their business going and a lot of distraction and other priorities. Can you just articulate the business case for being net positive? Like, what's it going to do for them? Well, I mean, look, the, the, core, the core idea of the book is not just what net positive looks like, but this is the path for profiting and thriving. You're serving the world, but you're serving needs. And that's what companies do, right? They solve a need for a customer. And these are the largest needs humanity's ever really faced. We're going to see, you know, multi-trillion dollar markets in transportation, building, consumer products, finance, all shifting, and it's happening right now, all shifting to low carbon, to less inequality, to, to dealing with biodiversity, like just dealing with our really big challenges. I mean, the business case for sustainability has been elaborated many, many times for many years, and it still takes a while to convince people. But, you know, I've always described it in a, you know, a few kind of key buckets of value um, that companies lower cost. That's kind of the obvious one. They use less energy or whatever. They reduce risk. They're kind of managing their big risks in their supply chain and their operations. 
They drive new revenues through innovation by solving problems, right, for consumers and for the world. And they drive intangible brand value. A lot of that is about, you know, loyalty and attracting and retaining talent. That's been kind of the biggest advantage for companies that have gone down this path. Unilever has been one of the most in-demand employers in the world. And they often cite that as one of the best examples of the value it's created because, you know, they'll admit like they make, you know, shampoo and soap. It's not sexy, but they're, you know, they're as in demand or more than Google or Microsoft or, you know, tech companies in so many of their markets. So I think that alone is like a huge part of the business case. But look, the, the data on this has gotten better and better. There's lots of studies showing companies that take a long term view, that take a stakeholder view are outperforming. You know, they're they're having greater return on equity or their, their profits are growing faster. Like in general, not everyone, not uniformly, in general, they are outperforming now. And I think that's going to be the case indefinitely. These are the ones getting prepared for the future. No one listening or watching should fail to realize that these are all P&L you know, cost savings or profit centers for the business, you know, the ability to attract and keep the talent you want, to make them effective advocates, to make them more resilient. Like these are all meat and potato, bottom line business drivers. At the same time, implicit in this dialogue around our responsibility as business leaders, large and small, to solve for our future is some tension around the idea of growth. Because if we've got to skew our businesses to do less bad and more good, mindful that this is a planet of finite resources, does that put a cap on growth? Especially when if you're a publicly traded company, like how do you resolve that tension? It's a really big question. It's one I think we've all been struggling with for a long time. And I tried to address it somewhat back in, you know, the big pivot era. Um, I, look, I think we want the companies that are doing the right thing to grow. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So if you're, if you're buying a product from Patagonia and they make a jacket that lasts three times as long as other jackets, and they'll repair it indefinitely, you want them to sell more because people are still gonna buy jackets, right? There's still a amount of consumption that's gonna happen. But what I learned a lot from Paul in, in this, this book writing, and, and we make the case for, is that so much of what companies do that find purpose and, and bring purpose into their brand is serve the community or serve the world. So, you know, Unilever, for example, has soap brands like Lifebuoy, where they've done hand-washing campaigns around the world. And they've reached like a billion people to teach them to avoid diseases that can kill them. And the case is that the larger the brand is, the bigger the impact. So it's, it is win-win in that, in that sense that a, a business does still need to thrive financially to grow. And the better it does, the larger its impact, the more influence it has, the more it can do the kinds of programs that tie into its brand. But that really works if you tie it deeply into the brand, right? It's not some additional cost center. It's just core to what that brand is. So, you know, Paul likes to say that, you know, people aren't, and Lifebuoy brand who work on that brand are not just selling soap, they're helping solve for disease. They're helping solve for health. Um, and that's part of what the brand is. So we actually want the companies that are doing well, that are trying to um, operate on only, you know, renewables, that are trying to put recycled content into all their products, that are trying to move away from packaging. We want them to grow. We need the better ones to outperform the ones that are lagging. All that said, we do need to have a conversation about consumption. And we talk about that towards the end of the book on kind of the big, the biggest issues that we got to start really thinking about. Consumption is, is a problem. We can dig into that because it's a, it's, a, it's a tough conversation.
I, I completely agree. And I think, uh, you know, awareness around that is rising very, very quickly. And before I go to actually how you execute against that is, you know, at a small company level or a higher company level, you know, what is the biggest obstacle that you see in all of your work with these companies? What is it C-suite buy-in? Is it um, just legacy investments in capital and infrastructure that they just can't walk away from? What's before we go to actually how you commit to it, what's the obstacle? Well, you, I mean, you're getting at some of the tactical ones and there are tactical ones and, and practical things like the pressure for short-term performance that comes from Wall Street. And in the book, we discovered in some good research that CEOs, there's a survey that says that when CEOs cite the, the pressures on them for short-term, that investors actually aren't number one, it's their own board. Um, like that comes out number one. So you're right, there's this tactical stuff but to me, the real hurdle, it's, and this sounds very, you know, kind of soft or something, but it, it's the narrative. It's the story. It's the story of business, right? And we all know, like, brands are stories, business is a story. And the story has been for 50 years that the only thing you're supposed to do is maximize shareholder value. So to step out of that paradigm, as, you know, Donna Meadows used to talk about, about like the paradigm shifting and, and even understanding that you're in a paradigm that's the biggest hurdle. You know, we, we have a little little box in the introduction to the book called Milton Friedman is Dead. And it's a, it's, it's a hopeful statement that we, are, that we will let go of this shareholder maximization model and see shareholders as a stakeholder that you serve by doing everything else, by serving stakeholders and solving needs and solving the world's problems that shareholders will do just fine. Right. And that's actually kind of old school, right? Before the neoliberal economics, that's kind of what businesses were about. Right. Johnson and Johnson had their their credo that they started like in the 40s. And it was about, you know, we serve patients and doctors and shareholders were like the fifth. I know. I don't know where we lost sight of this fundamental presumption that business should actually be good for people. Where did that go? How did that happen? It, look, it was a concerted effort in part, right, by market based ideologues, people that are part of the driving of inequality. Right. It's it was the, the very wealthy that have driven this and the very powerful that have driven this story so that basically we keep funneling money upwards and it's worked, right? Inequality's gotten drastically worse. Um, taxes have gotten lower almost everywhere on the wealthy and on business. And it hasn't served. It hasn't trickled down, right? They made the case that there was trickle down. And I got an economics degree. I'm open to theory. Had it ever worked anywhere at any scale, we could you put it in the toolkit? It doesn't, right? So like, the fact that we're still acting, the Republicans still act like it does, sorry to name a party, but like there's still this belief in that as an economic model. It, it just doesn't work. And actually, it's a, it's a powerful demonstration of the power of narrative where you can create the optics around something without actually the experience to follow. And that's equally dangerous in a negative sense. And I want to get to the tangible actions for how someone becomes net positive, because that's what's so powerful about your book. Like if you're a small company, or you're a larger high growth company or what, where do you start if you're like aware that we've got to change, but you've got all the sort of complications that everyone's dealing with right now. Just give us maybe one, two, three steps about how to think about becoming net positive. Yeah, so actually it's funny, today we were kind of finalizing a, um, a list. We're, we're putting, just gonna put a PDF on the website um, next week, you know, with launch that has like 30 questions. It's a readiness assessment, like how ready are you as an organization to kind of start down this net positive path? And there's a few kind of practical opening foundational questions like, and this is the stuff that I think you got to kind of get your head around and get lined up. You know, does your organization 
know its own footprint and understand how it affects climate and inequality and other major challenges throughout its value chain and how they affect it, right? This basic understanding of the world's thresholds and how it affects the business. Do you understand um, what stakeholders expect, expect of you now and in the future? So kind of gathering the basic data, like quite literally, what's your footprint along your value chain is the very first step. But you start to get this understanding of stakeholders, what do employees think, what do they want? You know, it's getting the basic understanding of where you are, like any good change effort. Um, but then a lot of it, I think it really does start with very personal things. Like we, the book really starts when we get into the steps or kind of the things to do. It really starts very much with yourself, the reader, the, the leaders of companies and about caring and empathy and humility. It's like you got to embrace a different set of values than business has been known for. Um, and, and start with yourself. Do you have your purpose? Do you know basically what your purpose is? And move from there to the organization's purpose and kind of build build up. But that starting point is really like data, right? Footprint and what people expect of you, like those basics um, and engage your employees. I always tell people, just start doing that. You will find so much power and, and engagement and excitement if you ask them to be part of the journey and, and to take the company to a new place. They want to. And specific to somebody that's looking to make that move because they realize they are complicit in the problem, even if it's just through inaction, what's the carrot and stick? You know, what is the upside, which you started to touch on then, but what's the downside if they don't do this? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's always going to be exceptions that don't disprove the rule. Like people will say, I've been asked a version of the question, well, sustainability is so important. Why does Exxon still make so much money? there's no guarantee that like every company that does stuff that's not great for the planet is going to just disappear. Like that's crazy. But the larger argument, the carrot is, is frankly relevance, right? Like and relevance in every dimension, not just like kind of some moral relevance, but are you actually serving the markets of the future, right? There's going to be these massive changes in how we do everything, transportation, buildings, consumer products, all of it. Are you actually ready to serve those markets and those products and services? And are you relevant to the millennials and Gen Z that are becoming well over half your workforce and decide who they buy from and who they work for based in part on values? Are you relevant to these important stakeholders? And I, I, that's the larger argument. You can break down within that the business case, right? The, the, the buckets of value that you can create, but it's fundamentally, are you still gonna be around? Does it make sense for you to exist? You have a purpose. And, you know, one of the challenges in this space is as things move in the right direction too slowly, but they move in the right direction. The dialogue that gets spun up goes through its own evolution, shall we say. We saw it with green. We saw it with sustainability. ESG now, a lot of people are attacking the optics of ESG. So where are we in that sort of life cycle of that? Like, where are we in terms of the transparency, accountability, the legitimacy of the efforts out there? Because these, again, all you and I care about are the timelines, you know? Yeah, I just care about the outcomes. I don't really care that much about the language or the terminology, like we could debate net positive or regenerative or sustainable. I, I don't really care as long as the outcomes are the same. I, look, I think there is a backlash happening against ESG in the financial world because money is rushing into these ESG funds and a lot just have named themselves sustainable funds and don't aren't really changing their investment behavior. And there's a lack of perfect metrics and you know all the ESG rating companies out there are growing and evolving. It's, it's anarchy, right? It's like chaos at the beginning of a new 
of a new system. Um, but this is kind of what has to happen, right? It's creative destruction, whatever you want to call it. it to me, it shows that everyone's at the table that we're starting to work through these issues and say, okay, we don't have the right metrics. Well, we better develop them, right? We don't have the right ways to communicate, communicate about this. Um, this is this is the painful development of a new way of doing business. Some some old ways have to be destroyed. I think that's the normal path. You said something really provocative in the book, which is there's no net positive company out there. What do you mean by that? And kind of where's what's the miss? Well, I mean, we got to be honest, right? The idea that you're that you're creating a positive impact and well-being on everybody you touch. I mean, it's almost again, it's almost impossible at this point. Like there's now companies with goals to like Google to be powered only by renewable energy at their data centers. The system's not in place to do that, right? Like you you need storage, you need the grid that you're plugged into locally to be net zero. So, it's it's physically impossible to some extent, right? The intentions can be there. I think you can do a lot on the people side. You can ensure that there's living wages, human rights issues are taken care of. There's no slavery in your supply chain. There's a bunch you can do to make sure that you're serving people very well and that you're innovating to solve problems. But some of it's just systematic, right? We're not, we're not there yet. We have to develop these, these partnerships that we talk about a lot in the book so that everyone can get to net positive together. Um, you know, it's also, in a way, it is a North Star. You know, it's like even for yourself, you say, I might have a positive impact on the world. Not every single thing you do, not every single step. Sure. Um, so I'm not sure, in a way, if it's reachable. But even getting part of the way there, right, or 90% of the way there would be a dramatic improvement, right? So, again, you're not going to be able to eliminate all impacts of your existence as a business. But when the system starts to change you can then move from just trying to reduce bads to adding more good, right? You can think about, okay, we got ourselves down to zero carbon. How do we help the community, our employees? And you're starting to see companies do that, right? Like help their employees get solar on their house. That's a net positive action where you're going beyond your own, your own direct impacts and trying to improve something in the, in the community around you. And, you know, so many of us, Andrew, are just anxious about the future. We're anxious about our kids. I was talking to my daughters the other night and they were saying, should we have kids or not? I was just so gutted, man. I've heard that. So gutted. They're 19 and 22 years old. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, and so, but paint us a picture of what it could look like if we do commit to these net positive principles. Like, you know, there's enough doom and gloom that inspires apathy out there. But let's talk about the positive for a second. What's that vision for how humanity and more particularly business could show up. Well, it's funny. I think we've had a problem with what you're asking in the sustainability community of like painting the positive vision. It's it's not that we've been doom and gloom, but we've been trying to raise awareness and get people to see that like this is a problem. And I think it's been harder to paint the picture. I think, but I think we're getting better at it. And we're seeing, like I said, we're seeing pieces of it, right? There's businesses that are in parts of their operations. Um, and, and there's so many now kind of clean tech products that are growing so fast there are buildings that generate more energy than they need, right? They have been built. There are examples of that. So that gives you this sense of what it could be. There was in this weird way, if you remember in the first few weeks of the lockdown in March and April of 2020, do you remember how like LA, Beijing, there were all these cities that all of a sudden there was a blue sky and because literally everyone had stopped driving for a few days and all the factories were were slowing down. This isn't the way we wanna get there, but it was actually, I think, really important because it's, it showed people, oh, I could live in an L.A. where it's really clean air 
and I see a blue sky and I see that there's mountains that you can actually see, you know, from, from LA. I'm in LA right now. My wife and I did exactly that. We're like, wait a second, there's mountains there? Yeah. Wow. You know, so yeah. I think it actually helped people start to see what's possible. I mean, it, it, it sounds kind of obvious, but imagine the air is clean, the water is clean. There's, there's enough for everyone. There's sufficiency for everyone. They have health care. There's diversity. The pay gap is gone. I mean, basically, it's the sustainable development goals. But right? imagine we've reached those and what kind of world that is. And, and, you know, I think for a lot of us, the motivation isn't just my own personal benefit. It's like I want to live in that world. I will feel better myself. So maybe that's selfish, but I want to live in that world where, where there's enough for everybody. It doesn't mean there's no inequality or there's no billionaires. It just means everybody's got enough to, to, right. to thrive. Um, I just think that's it's an amazing, exciting vision that's so much more connected. And you talked about, you know, what's the carrot or what, what drives this? I just don't you want to wake up and go to work in a business that's trying to do that? I mean, isn't that just far better than just walking into a business that just is trying to hit quarterly targets of some kind that is just trying to raise their their quarter by 6.3%? I mean, I, I've been in those companies. I've worked in those companies. There's no mission. It's not exciting. Um, and I think younger generations won't accept that really as as a place to work. They're going to want they're going to want meaning. Oh, no, they give they give me a hard time. And I'm we, we work in this space yeah. and we're not doing enough. I, I mean, know, it's, it's true. Yeah, it's awesome. But let me ask you, you know, everything you're suggesting turns on kind of an individual assumption of a role in this change. And more specifically for leaders, whether you're a founder or a C-suite or a CEO, to be a different type of leader. So how would you characterize this leader that's going to help us get there? Because without that leadership, it's just hope, you know? Yeah, no, we, we talk, that's actually, as I said, kind of the opening steps of the book are really starting with yourself. And we have a chapter called, um, How Much Do You Care? Kind of after laying out the introduction and kind of the principles of a net positive company, we start with yourself. And there's a handful of, of principles. I mean, it starts with a, a sense of duty and purpose. Um, there's, there's humility and empathy, right? I think for me, empathy is what's lacking in the world. It cause, the lack of empathy is what causes almost all major problems. If you can't put yourself in other people's shoes and you feel like it's a zero-sum game, you're going to end up fighting, to say the least. Um, so there's, there's, that, there's that empathy and there's um, a belief in partnership and openness to partnership, um, which they all build on each other, right? You kind of need to be humble to go out to the world and say, I don't know how to do this, to go out to NGOs. This is one of the things I think Unilever's done really well in joining all these partnerships and like publishing their human rights report on, on their supply chain to say, here, we have some problems. Instead of just throwing bombs from the outside, why don't you come in and help us fix it? We don't know how to do it. Like that's, that takes a lot of you know, guts and you have to have a belief. And so like in the end, the, the most important one of these, and it's in our subtitle is courage. Um, and I think about this a lot, like wh the, the courage it takes to say, I I'm not going to talk to the investors every quarter, right? I'm, I, that's not helping my business. It's not helping me. And just to kind of break the mold. I, I think we have a kind of a pandemic in business of fast followers. I get I hear that from um, clients all the time. Well, we're fast followers. We don't want to, you know, do too much. But then nobody leads, right? Like, how fun is that? <laughs> so you need to have the courage to, of your convictions, right? Of to do the right thing, to do the harder right instead of the easier wrong and ask that of your organization, right? And, and to do that, you have to be someone who's inspiring and walks the talk. You have to be followable, right? Follow worthy. Um, so you have to walk the talk. And, and, and if we've learned anything in recent times, 
everything about our lives is pretty transparent, right? You, you're, you're literally seeing into our, our lives, our rooms now. We're all talking from our homes. And leaders can get caught out by doing something in their personal life. You know, we've seen the videos go viral of someone does something that like, and they get fired. They get, you know, like it's everything's fair game. And you have to show that you walk the talk. And I think that, you know, those are the kind of key principles of the kind of leader that we're going to need. And that's on top of regular leadership principles, right? Like curiosity about the world, understanding trends that are driving your business, understanding technology, you know, um, the ability to kind of um, groom people. Like there's all these other things that have been part of being a good leader and a good executive forever, right? You can go back to Drucker, but we're, we're adding in that kind of that dimension of that empathy, humility, courage, you know, all that stuff you need to go this extra mile. And I think, you know, I think the appetite for this change and engaging around this change is just building every day. There's more and more of us pushing that rock up the hill, shall we say. But what would you say is the one thing you want people to take away from the book? If there was that one key idea, and again, everyone get this book, Net Positive. What's the one thing you want them to take away? But also, what's the one thing that keeps you up at night? Um... It's an interesting question. I mean, I'm thinking about the keep me up at night. But the one thing I guess that we you know, hope that people take away is that the, the way to thrive as a business and as a person is to take this journey towards net positive and that it's possible, that it's doable, right? It isn't just pie in the sky, utopian fantasy. It has begun, right? And, and so like it's both that this is really the only path. This isn't like a nice to have, that this is what has to happen now. And it's, and it's the profitable path, right? Like that's the, that's the core of it all. Um, what keeps me up at night, I mean, look, there's lots to be optimistic about. I mean, the, the, the clean economy explosion is unbelievable, like better than anybody expected. The youth, the Greta Thunbergs of the world, you know, they're, they're pissed off, they're taken to the streets, it's amazing. Um, all of that is great. I think what keeps me up is that the horizon that we're shooting for, the dichotomy of being in sustainability is like, we have won the first battle. Every company's at the table now, but the horizon we're shooting for keeps moving away from us. I mean, I, I for one, am really tired of articles that say um, this thing happening faster than scientists thought, melting faster, you know, bigger. I'm like, why is it still faster than scientists thought? We got to change our expectations. Um, and what keeps me up at night is that we, we are in this um, historic swing toward kind of every person for themselves, especially in the U.S., at the very time that we need to be completely connected and work together. And, and, and part of that is driven by the other thing that keeps me up at night, which is the misinformation um, malignancy in the world that has convinced people that maybe climate change isn't so bad or vaccines are dangerous for them. Like these really, you know, counterproductive things that make it very hard for us all to work together. And that's what keeps me up is how polarized. I mean, I live in the US, I can't speak for other countries, but polarized is an understatement, right? We're, we're at risk in this country of actually falling to autocracy. We're still at risk, our democracy is at risk. So that's the thing that actually keeps me up at night because we can't solve climate change and inequality in an autocratic country that is run by people who don't care about those things, right? We just can't, we can't possibly do it. And that's, that's scary for us in the world. If the U.S. isn't on board, if the U.S. isn't moving fast on climate, it's going to be difficult, right? I mean, we are, we are big um, and, you know, it has, to, it has to happen here. And let me ask you a curious question as a fellow author. You and Paul have written this book and you've written several other books. And I've found in my process of writing a book, it changes me as a person. 
How has this book, writing this book with Paul, changed you? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, I, because I, I thought about this a lot lately. That if I wrote a follow-on, I've realized, like, I can't believe I'm even saying this because you know, writing a book is incredibly painful. I've heard interviews with authors, you know, in podcasts, you know, for years. Almost none say it's enjoyable, right? They talk about how painful writing is, and and and. Uh, you know, I always say to people, it's great to have written a book. Completely agree, right? Right. I mean, look, every time you go through a book, the reason, even if nobody reads it, is the process of thinking it through gets your ideas together, gets get you, you move your thinking down a path that changes you, right? Like I, I think differently about sustainable business because I've thought this through with with Paul. Um, but on a personal level, it's that question of, you know, our, our overarching question in the book is, is the world better off because your business is in it? And I can't help but ask, is the world better off because I'm in it? So it, it, it also happened to come, I talk about this in the preface, the book came while I was working on it. Um, three weeks into the pandemic, I turned 50. Like it, this kind of, these kind of midlife moments, sending my kid to college, there was a lot of personal stuff for me, transition. Asking that question, when you hit late middle life, you're like, am I having the impact I want to? What do I do for the next, hopefully 30 years to have that impact? So it has changed me in thinking about that impact, you know, and, and how do I be net positive and how do you apply the same principles to your day to day? I think it's really powerful what you said, because effectively we're all having the same visceral personal experience of timelines that are contracting towards us which is our own existential crisis and why were we here and was it meaningful and will we make a difference and did we discharge our responsibility to future generations? I want to say, Andrew, as a friend and as a colleague, I, I deeply respect. Thank you for your leadership through all of your books and also to Paul as well for co-authoring this incredibly important book called Net Positive. And please, everyone, go out and get the book. The time is now and we need guidance. It's not about why we should do it. It's about how we get it done. And Net Positive will tell you. And thanks so much, Andrew, for all your leadership. Thank you also for the leadership you've had in this, in this realm. It's been great to watch and thank you for bringing me on. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead With We. Our show is produced by Goal 17 Media and you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. Make sure you subscribe to Lead With We on Apple, Google or Spotify and do share it with your friends and colleagues. You can also watch our episodes on YouTube at We First TV. And I'm excited to share that my new book, Lead With We, comes out November 9th and is available for pre-order now on Amazon, Google Books, and Barnes & Noble. So check it out. See you next episode, and until then, let's all lead with we.